uh, and I have the title of my message is Why Christmas? Why Christmas? And of course, uh, we have been in this uh, topic for the last month now, uh, dealing with uh, the topic of Christmas. And every year we focus in this time of year on December on Christmas and on Christ and his birth. But the theological question remains why Christmas? And so I want to talk about that this morning, and I'm going to go to a Christmas passage that I don't think I've ever preached on for Christmas, Um, probably others have, but it's out of the book of Hebrews, and it talks about the, the reason Jesus came into this world. And we're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 2, and in verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now... We do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And I'm going to just have a word of prayer here. Lord, we are grateful. Grateful for your word, grateful for the opportunity this morning, O oh Lord, to look into the reason we celebrate Christmas. And I pray you might be exalted among us today. Your message of truth would go out from many different pulpits and places today. And people would come to saving faith in Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to focus in this morning on those last two verses that we read Uh, And it says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. And we're going to look at that and the the actual break this up in a little bit of the phrases that appear in this text. And what that verse 14 is talking about is it's talking about the incarnation. It's talking about really the Christmas story. And we, of course, go to other passages often and we look at the details surrounding the birth of Christ, either from the book of Matthew or the book of Luke or the Old Testament prophecies that deal with that. But uh, here, the writer to the, uh, the Hebrews, as uh, the New Testament book here, reveals to us the fact that the Son, that is Jesus, came into this world and he partook 
in flesh and blood. Very important that he did so. And you might ask, why Christmas? And there are, I have four reasons this morning out of these two verses why it's important that we understand what Christmas is all about and why Christmas had to happen. And I say Christmas is being synonymous with the birth of Christ. I'm not talking about all the, the commerce that goes with it and all the gift exchanges and those things. We do those things. Nothing necessarily bad about that. Um, it's just sometimes it, it really takes away from the reason why Christmas is celebrated to begin with. It is celebrated because of the birth of Christ, and we certainly honor him, and hopefully even when we're giving gifts, we do that as well. But the first point is this, because you are human, he became human. That's really what that says. And as much then as the children, that's children like you and me, right? The children of God in that sense. If you are, uh, you're, you're a human being, right? You are numbered under that umbrella of humanity, and it says, then as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, referring back in the text to the son, to Jesus, it says, likewise shared in the same. And the question goes out, what does it mean to be human? And now you're all saying, well, I'm human and uh, you're human and we probably know what it's like to be human. And that's hopefully true. I can say I know a lot of things that we share in common and we all have various things we share right we have all joys and we have happy times we have sad times that come we know what it's like to experience sometimes grief or or on the other hand some deep devotion and love but i would say this that not all of us share the same exact experiences but we do share that human experience we have sometimes we have great needs that are represented and other times we are able to give in abundance and those kind of things But to be human really is to be part of this world and part of the society of humanity and to, in ways, relate to other people. And that's really what this verse talks about in that, what it means to be human. It really means this, that that Jesus came into this world, he put on flesh, all right, and he became human that he might indeed understand what it's like to be human, but also, even better, to save people from their sins. In the context of this passage, it says he was made a little lower than the angels. Uh, first time I ever read that verse way back when, when I became a Christian, I was reading through my Bible, I said, what does that mean? He was made lower than the angels. I mean, if you think about it, he's, he's God the Son, and he was the one who was given there, according to what Isaiah says. And he, is, he never gave up that position as God the Son, but he took on flesh. And the point is this, when he took on flesh, he made himself lower than the angels. Angels, I, of course, we don't know a lot about them, but the Bible does speak of angels. And we know that angels, um, well, first of all, some of the angels were very mighty angels and could have easily taken out um, thousands of people if they wanted to in judgment and they were used sometimes in that we know they're closely associated sometimes with the glory of God like in Isaiah chapter 6 and the seraphim the cherubim there as they're mentioned the seraphim and we know also that angels are able to go from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm and all of those things but humans cannot do that See, when you put on flesh, and that wasn't our choice, we put on flesh in our mother's wombs, and uh, our mother's womb, and when we did that, we became part of this, this race of people. 
but I am bound by this occupation of this world. I cannot go between heaven and earth right now. Angels apparently can. Um, Christ made himself lower than the angels. He who was infinite brought himself into a body that was finite in the sense that he would experience death. He would not experience corruption, as the Bible says. He would be resurrected, and uh, as we will someday as well. But what does it mean to be human? And I thought in the context of this, uh, in, the next, uh, in this verse, it talks about those who had the, the fear of death in the next verse and were slaves to that fear. And death is something that knocks on our doorstep all the time. Uh, I think every birthday that comes around I celebrate, I think, oh, that's one less birthday I'll have here on earth. And the idea of being in a finite body, in a sense, death is going to come one of these days. That's the reality, and I don't mean to throw kind of a black cloud on our Christmas celebration here on Christmas Day, but that's the reality of why Jesus came. Because we are subject to death. And the reason we're subject to death is because we're sinners and we're born as sinners and we're shaped in sin. And in us is the very fact that we are at war with God and we deserve judgment as sinners. Purely, we deserve it. I mean that. (laughs) Because we violated a holy God's law. We broke his law. I broke his law. You broke his law. There is no one that's ever walked in this earth that hasn't broken his law except the Lord Jesus who came and was without sin. We needed a Savior who would come from our people who would somehow be able to take the penalty of our sin upon himself and yet not be a sinner himself. You see, that's why he took on flesh and blood. But more than that, he also is the one who can identify with us. One other verse in the book of Hebrews says, We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in every way was tempted like we are, and yet without sin. And what that says is that Jesus is our high priest. See, a priest, just by definition, is someone who is a mediator between man and God. And I will say this, that there were illustrations, like in the Old Testament, of, of the Levitical priesthood, the Jews... Uh, were commanded and out of the tribe of Levi they had priests and these priests offered sacrifices in the tabernacle later in the temple Uh, they did so on behalf of the people and they were all according to this book in the book of Hebrews were types of a greater who would come they were just a shadow of something they weren't the substance and really the substance was Jesus who is the perfect high priest and by the way he ever lives to make intercession for us one of the things with a human priest is uh, you know in a sinful priest as you know humans are in that all of us in that race we die so even if there were good levitical priests guess what eventually they passed off the scene some of them weren't so good either some of them couldn't really identify with the people because they hadn't experienced the same things as the people had sometimes that happens i wish i could tell you i know what you're going through all the time I don't know if I really wish that because that means that I would also have to take all the hurts and all the things that you might be feeling right now. And the, sometimes this time of year is a very lonely time for people. And, you know, um, I, I say that casually. Oh, I wish I could know what you're going through. I wish you could know what I'm going through. But the reality is there's only one that really knows what we are going through fully, and it is Jesus. 
He is our high priest who has been touched with every feeling of infirmity and every thing that of the human experience and even death. And he's able to take away the fear of death. Let's be real for a moment. Very few people, unless they're just something wrong with their mind, are not afraid of death. Especially the process of dying. I mean, you know, you might say, well, I'm not really fearful of death because I'm a Christian. I know where I'm going. I'm going to be in the presence of God and it's far better than this place. But most people don't want to go through that process because it often involves pain and heartache and loss and all the things that happen with that. Jesus tasted that for us. He did so. The oldest book in the Bible, I think, sheds light on the human heart in regard to this fear of death. In the book of Job, written, oh, around probably 2,000 years before Christ, and it was during the time of the patriarchal period, uh, Job, and of course the story of Job, opens up with a man who was, he was a good man. He was right with God. He was doing the right things. He was, he was someone who you could go to and you couldn't point out any sin in his life, although he wasn't without sin, but he wasn't openly out there sinning or anything like that. And this awful, terrible, bad things and series of bad things comes to Job. We know that the devil is allowed to tempt Job and he starts with taking Job's material wealth and he was a very wealthy man. And then he he takes his family members, his children are killed. And then takes his marriage as well. His marriage, his wife says, why don't you curse God and die? And now those who were one flesh are now divided in their spirit in a sense when the wife was against Job and against God in that process and the heartache that would have brought in his time of grief. And then his Job's health fails, his very health. And he's, he fears he's dying. His body is covered with sores and he's just sitting there in total misery And his friends come and they offer no hope either. They just give him miserable counsel. That's what he calls them. But yet in the whole process of this, Job did not sin. He worshipped. And yet we see a man whose heart is broken and bare before us and on the pages of scripture. And in Job chapter 7 verse 13 he says this. When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint... Then you, Lord, scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. He thought, I'm, I'm dying. And I don't know what I'm... What, he's, he's, he's fearing that impending death. So that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. Job here is making a very flat out statement that in our flesh we don't live forever in this way it's a good thing now i know some of you think you're looking up here at a perfect body perfect face perfect no not at all i i know i can tell you don't think that either but you know these little glasses last couple of years i've had to wear these more everything i look at has to go further away The eyes are going. The hair has been gone for decades. Yeah. Amen. 
I don't have to cut it anymore, you know, just every buzz cut a little bit every so often. But you know, we don't live forever in this body. He's not done with the body. Someday there'll be a great resurrection to join the spirit and the soul in glory. And for those who are believers, united again in a different body, one glorified, like unto Christ, however that's going to be. But Job says, my days are but a breath. Sometimes we're called up short when our health goes and we realize, my days are but a breath. And, th- and that's what the book of James says, whereas he says, you know, now I shall be on the morrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor or a breath that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I think of that. My, one of my grandfathers was born 100 years ago this year. 100 years ago. He's been gone for, oh... 30 years, almost. Not quite that long. And I think about that. And I think, where does that time go? And I'm not going to dwell on that too much, but it's a breath. Poof, just like that. Your life is short. And what you do with Jesus Christ, how you trust him in this life, while there is breath in your lungs, determines where you will spend eternity. That's why Christmas is important. Job goes on, what is man that you should exalt him? That you should set your heart on him? Job's asking that question, Lord, why would you ever care for us? (laughs) It's a good question. Why would you ever care for us? He does. By the way, that's not Job's end result of his theology, by the way. The book of Job is a series of times where Job is questioning God. And and he doesn't have the benefit of the, the finished book. We do. We can look at the end. And in the end, Job wins. In the end, he wins because God wins. And in the end, you win, by the way, because God won. Chapter 19, I love this. Job chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed... This I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. You see, where Job, thousands of years before the Redeemer would come, he looks forward by faith, and he says, I know my Redeemer lives. My friends, we look back by faith thousands of years, and we say, I know my my Redeemer lives. And we can say the same thing that Job says, that someday I will see him face to face. I, these eyes that need glasses right now won't need him then, and I'll see him as he really is. Why Christmas? Well, because you're human, he became human. Why Christmas? So he could die. That's the second point. I've talked about that, but... That's the reality of it. It says that in verse 14. He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, that he would die. You see, how can an infinite, holy God, the creator of all things who existed before there was ever time and will never expire outside of time, how could he die? The only way he could die is because he could put on flesh. That's the only way. And so he did it. 
And the reason is because he had to taste death for every man. That's what it says here in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, just in the preceding verses. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The grace of God. Grace extended to us on this Christmas day. Grace in that Jesus tasted death for you and me. You know, there's times that people have to die uh, a, a lonely death. Sometimes they're all alone when they die. But for the believer, you're never alone. Jesus is with you. He tasted death for everyone. And he'll walk through death with us. Oh, I'm thankful for that. He could die. You know, the very first mention of the promise of Christmas is found in the book of Genesis. Familiar verse. But it talks about the death of the Messiah, the Christ. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Just preceding that in the context, you have sin entering into the human race. And just a few verses from the time where Adam and Eve sinned, and sin is passed on to all of their descendants, just a few verses, God says, but I got a promise for you. And I think that's good, you know. God couldn't leave man that far without hope. That's grace. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking, this is God speaking to the devil, Satan, the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you notice capital S there with seed referring to someone who is uh, coming in the future. Someone who would come from the line of, of Eve and through Adam. But through Eve would be the line. And it says this, he, that redeemer, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Really, that last phrase there is what Hebrews 2.9 is saying, that he had to taste death for every, everyone. You see, at the cross, when Jesus died, he would indeed bruise the head or crush the head of the serpent. And the only thing the serpent could do was just touch his heel. That's it. Big difference. The victory was won. By the way, it was all planned, just like I said. It was planned by God before there was even anything created. The Bible talks of Jesus who was slain before the foundations of the world. And I'm glad that God had a plan. It wasn't like, oops, man sinned, now we're in trouble, what do we do? It wasn't like, oh, uh, oh we've got to send a baby. We'll find a ba- Oh, we'll just, you know, no. It was all planned. It was planned before any of us existed before matter existed he planned it Matthew 121 and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins it was planned hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth before the son was born Isaiah prophesied for unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given. And that is so absolutely theologically correct. Because of course God is always theologically correct. But in Bethlehem's manger a child was born. But the son, the eternal son of God, was he, he was given on that day. He's always been the son. 
but he became a child in a moment of time. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He came to die. Isaiah in in chapter 53 says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that we should see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. And that speaks of the Christ who is to come. He was born and he would grow up and there was no outward beauty in the person of the flesh of Christ. He was very average is how that could be commented on. Sounds sort of different because we're used to seeing the 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 pictures and the not the photos obviously but the the artist renditions of the christ right and you see them sometimes uh, painted on on cathedrals walls and stained glass and and in uh paintings in museums and all those things and you see the christ child and he's got this glow about him or the the jesus and he's with the crowds of people preaching and he's got a halo no He would have looked very average, but he was not average. When they came to arrest Jesus when he was in the garden, Judas had to betray him with a kiss because the Romans didn't know who he was. They didn't know if this was one of the disciples or this was Jesus. You know, I like that because, you see, I need a Jesus who is like me and you. I need someone who's like that, but I need someone who's not a sinner like me. So the world does this with Jesus. They like to either make him something so untouchable you can't, you can't ever get to him. The halo. Or they make him out to be someone who's just like us in a sin and he would sit down and get drunk with you. And that's not the Jesus of the Bible either. We need someone who will save us from our sins. Who's apart from sin. Who's holy, harmless, and undefiled. He goes on to say he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knows your sorrows. As we, and it says, and we, as it were, uh, as, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You mean, that means this, that when he was despised and rejected, the people who did so, by the way, I spent about 18 years of my life rejecting Christ. I didn't esteem him very highly. I didn't value him. Why would I need Jesus? That's the way I looked at it. That's how most people wake up on Christmas morning. And let's be real. They wake up and they're like, yeah, let's get the gifts out of the way and let's do this and that. But why do I really need Jesus? Hopefully you're not that. I, I, probably you're not if you're in a church service this morning. And I'm glad because you're focusing on him. Do you value him? See, that's what faith demands. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at this verse. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You know, when Isaiah 9, 6 says one of the titles of this one is called Prince of Peace, the peace that he brought the first time 
was the peace between man and God. Do you know that kind of peace? That's the most important peace that you'll ever find on this earth. By the way, you won't find it uh, any other way but through the Prince of Peace. And this world will never know peace unless they embrace the Prince of Peace. And I know there are lots of revisionist historians out there now that would like to take out Christianity and just remove it from Western civilization and from the world and have no mention of Christianity. And they fail to realize the benefits of society from when, when societies embraced Christianity. And all of a sudden, people began to value every individual. People began to understand that, that rights extended to all people, not just some select elite group. That the slave was not to be a slave and was to be released and freed. And justice was demanded at the cross and therefore we also in mercy require justice and our laws and the basis of that being fair and merciful. And I could go on and on and on and the amount of hospitals that are out there planted across our lands that started when some Christian somewhere said we need to help people and we start a hospital. And you do that. Or missionary work that has benefited people. And gone from places like, I think of some places where people went in at the peril of their life because of disease and sometimes cannibalism and everything else. And they would go in and they would be in a place where you might have um, infant mortality somewhere around 80%. And all of a sudden, just the fact of them benefiting from receiving the gospel and changing some things in their life, having those things go by the wayside as well to where it normalized more, more healthy babies being born. Those kind of things. Those are practical results of people embracing good theology. And yet, sometimes we esteem him lightly and not at all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, all your sin was laid on him. Isn't that great? I love it. And I will, I will just skip ahead here on that. But verse, or point three. That he might destroy the devil. Now I've commented on this, but, but I want to just pick up on a couple more points on it. He says that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil is the enemy of all that is good. He is a person. The Bible describes him. He is cunning. He is crafty. He is smarter than any other, you know, any any person here or me or you. He is was a created angel. Lucifer being his name. Uh, expressing the idea of brilliance or brightness that would be the the lucifer the name and he wanted to be like god and you read of that exchange in the bible where he said i will be like the most high god and the only thing is there's only one god and he's only god and no one else and if you went or the devil or whoever went to be god first of all it's you're not it's not no rightful place for that because you're not. It's the reality of truth. So he was cast out of the presence of God. And he was confined to the earth. For a season. And he works his work. 
And yet Christ entered into that world to destroy the devil. God has a plan. And it was through death that he would do that. And I can't explain it perfectly other than to say the very thing that we all fear and the very thing that enslaves us and the very thing that is the greatest of burdens on any of us, which is death, is going to be and will and is destroyed by the death of Christ and secured by his resurrection. Colossians chapter 2 says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, that's the devil. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And this is the way God did it. Think of this. God the Son, Jesus, comes. He is born in Bethlehem's manger. He, he grows up very normal looking and, and acting other than without sin. That would be different for sure. And he goes at the prime of his life, at about age 33, he goes to a cross. And there, as the Bible describes it, He's beaten beyond the recognition of being a man. In other words, he looked like a big, bruised piece of meat. That's all. And I don't want to make that sound awful, but that's what the Bible describes it. His face was marred beyond, it says the visage, his visage or his face was marred beyond recognition. Couldn't tell who it was. He was bleeding all over his body. His, bare, his back would have been laid bare in ribbons of uh, slash marks from the beatings he took and the whips. The crown of thorns that was plaited on his head would have sunk deep. And if you've ever seen even a, or had a small head wound, you know how much blood comes out of those. He was just covered in blood. And again, sometimes, and I don't want to be too graphic here, but he was stripped naked. The Bible says he was stripped naked. They took his clothes and they put him out there and, and before and they parted they, they cast lots to get the best parts of his clothes, pass it on. And the shame and awfulness of a savior, God hanging on a cross, dying and bleeding out naked. Can't think of anything worse. And yet it was that where he was going to meet everything that sin does. Greatest problem with sin is it leads to death. Think of all the shame and just absolute awfulness of sin. Think of it. He, he bore it all. He took it all. He made a public spectacle of it. And in doing so, he defeats the devil. And someday that old devil is going to be gone. Fully. No more to plague us in that why so he could deliver us from slavery you were a slave if you're if you're a saved you know you're you're somebody who's trusted christ you're no longer a slave but if you're still in your sin you've not trusted jesus as your savior you're a slave you whether you know it or not you're a slave to your sin you're a slave to everything and you're also a slave to the fear of death 
He says, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Think of all the crazy superstitions that people do in their life. And they do it all the time, every day. Worried about this. This might keep me lucky. This will keep me away from dying. This will keep me healthy. Think of all the superstitions that are driving people today that can do nothing to stop death. Jesus says, I'll release you from your superstitions, your traditions, your crazy rituals. And I will give you a heart, a new heart. You won't have to fear death anymore. You're free. He took a doorway to hell and he made it a doorway to heaven. That's what he did at the cross. And by the way, Jesus isn't on the cross anymore, is he? He was taken off the cross and he was placed in the ground in the tomb. And we know that on the third day he rose again, victorious over sin and death. If the grave had held him, then that would have been the end And he would have been the most, well, pitiful, shameful Savior that we could have ever had. Not a Savior at all. But he is a Savior. But now we see Jesus, right? That's what the writer says here. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's a promise from John's gospel in chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus is the door to heaven. That's why we need Christmas. He's the one that can change lives. He's the one that can do miraculous things. I end with this because uh, I do a, a fair amount of reading of history and appreciate it more as I, I get older even. And in 1944, this time of year, from December 16th to January 28th of 1945, uh, that winter of 44 into 1945, uh, was the hardest fought battle of World War II, for the Americans anyways. And it was uh, the Battle of the Bulge, as it became known. Um, On December 16th, uh, in the... There was a line of about 700 miles where the Allies had stretched out their forces and they were getting ready to thrust into um, uh, Belgium and other places to go into Germany to defeat the Nazis. And the Germans decided they would throw about 250,000 men, actually total by the end of it was around 400,000 men, up against one small spot, um, about a 70-mile stretch, Uh, known as what became known as the bulge because they pushed in with panzer divisions and lots of troops against very um, strung out as far as space and all that stuff of American troops Uh, people like you know in the 101st airborne division uh, maybe you've you know read or seen the band of brothers that story that went on Uh, Stephen Ambrose's book the band of brothers fantastic book that describes that time Um, awful time But in December of 1944, for about two weeks there, um, it it was absolutely atrocious. Uh, The attrition and the death and all of that that was uh, hitting the Americans was overwhelming. Uh, They were literally digging into places like the Ardennes Forest on the Belgian, right into Belgium. And um, 
they were experiencing just horrendous conditions. Living in cold, no food. They had been surrounded. Many of these units had become surrounded and totally cut off. People like the cooks that were attached to your units were no longer cooking food. They couldn't. They didn't have any, and they were just riflemen at that point. And that's the way they were fighting. There's a story that comes out of that time. It was on December 24th of 1944, Christmas Eve. And that afternoon, there had been some fighting, and there was a young GI who got shot in his upper leg and he was bleeding out pretty severely and two of his friends his comrades said we aren't gonna he's not gonna make it unless we can get him back to a place where he can have a surgeon so they grabbed him and they began to drag him through the woods as fast as they could and they got hopelessly lost in no time they feared he would be dying and they would probably he would die so they said we better go find a place to sit with him and as they were going through the woods lost not knowing what they where they were they had actually gone behind the german lines at this point and they ended up coming up to a little cabin in the woods and there they noticed there was smoke coming out of the chimney and somebody was there and so they came up they knocked on the door and went in and there was a woman there Mrs. Vinken, Vinken, excuse me, and she had her 12-year-old son with her. She was actually a German, and she uh, knew that uh, assisting any Americans would mean that if the Germans found out, she would probably be killed. But she took pity on these three GIs, the one that was greatly injured as well, and she said, it's Christmas Eve, I'm going to bring them in, and I'm going to fix them a meal. And so she did. So she brought him into the warmth of the cabin, and there she was fixing them some meal, and she was going to go out. She had a rooster in a shed that she had brought. Um, They had escaped from a town that was nearby. Her husband actually was still in that town, and um, they were living in the forest there to try to get, get away from the fighting. And she had brought a rooster and put it in the shed. She went out to get it, and she was going to kill the rooster and and feed the the American GIs that were there a, a, a dinner for Christmas Eve. And as she was out there in the shed, she heard a knock, and the door opened, and it was four German soldiers. And they were heavily armed, and she knew that she was probably in a lot of trouble. They asked, though, if they could take shelter in her cabin. She knew the Americans were in there. She said, you cannot come in unless you put your arms down. And they said, fine. They put their weapons down, and to their surprise, when they went in, were these three Americans who were also disarmed. And they all stared at each other for a moment. And one of the Germans began to sing Silent Night. And the Americans sang Silent Night too. One in German, one in English. (laughs) One of the Germans pulled out a loaf of brown bread that they had, just a little piece, and a flask of wine. And they sat down and they had communion together. Meanwhile, Mrs. Vinken prepared a lovely meal for them, and they spent Christmas Eve together, four German soldiers and three American soldiers. It gets better than that. One of those German soldiers was a medical student before the war, and he saw the gravely injured American GI, and he said, I think I can 
take care of your leg. And he pulled out a little surgery kit that he carried and he fiddled around without anesthesia into the man's leg and got a hold of the bullet and pulled it out and sewed him back up. And that man was named Ralph Blank. He survived the war. The next morning, they all looked at each other, wished each other a Merry Christmas, and they departed back to the various lines. That story was told after the war by that 12-year-old boy named Fritz Vinken. And he shared that all over the place. And by the way, Ralph Blank also shared that story. And before Ralph Blank died, he was able to actually meet Fritz Vinken. And they reminisced about that night like no other night that they spent in that Christmas day at the Battle of the Bulge. You see, when Jesus comes in on the scene, he makes things different, doesn't he? He can take that which is at war with each other and with God, and he can bring peace in the midst of it. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? That's why we celebrate Christmas. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are facing very similar times very dark world we live in, people who are without hope. And yet, Lord, I pray today you might break through. The light of Christ would be seen. Thank you. You are the door to heaven. And if we enter in that door, we are saved. It's that simple. And we just, again, thank you for your goodness to us and the blessings that we all have on this Christmas day. In Jesus' name, amen.